This is Marathon Training Academy, episode 295. Welcome to the Marathon Training Academy podcast, where we empower you to run a marathon and change your life. I'm Trevor. And I'm Angie. In this episode, we talk about how to fuel for a marathon, including what to eat before, during, and after. Plus, Angie will answer some questions sent in from listeners about carbo-loading, fueling considerations for female athletes, and how to fuel for an ultra. And of course, you can get more help going the distance and figuring this whole marathon training thing out uh, inside the academy. We've got all kinds of resources for you. Find out how to join and become a member when you visit MarathonTrainingAcademy.com. So Angie, how has your running been going lately? It's been going great. Yeah, I feel really strong. I took a couple months during the summer, of course, just kind of off from training. I obviously kept running because I love to run. Just weren't actively training for a race. Exactly. I wasn't following a training plan, just kind of doing what I wanted. Um, But the beginning of September, I've ramped it up again since I've got the Hartford Marathon on the calendar for the middle of October, and then also the Manchester Marathon for November. So I'm excited to be, you know, back following a schedule. I really like checking off all the boxes and (laughs) that good stuff. So, yeah. One thing that is going on this fall is the MTA podcast, Virtual Half Marathon. Big thanks to all of you who have already registered for this race. We're going to have an epic year again. So far, we've got runners from 44 states here in the U.S., plus Puerto Rico, and then a bunch of other countries, always a lot of runners from Canada joining us. So far, we have folks from Alberta, British Columbia, Ontario, Saskatchewan, and the Yukon Territory, plus runners from the UK, Sweden, Norway, New Zealand, the Netherlands, Mexico, Japan, India, Germany, Denmark, and Australia. Of course, everyone that signs up gets this year's awesome finishing medal, which features runners that move up and down a mountain. And this year's hat is a trucker-style technical running hat made by Boca Gear. It's really, really slick. And I've been testing it on several long runs. And it's weird because I'll sweat through the hat and I'll think, okay, I just destroyed this hat. (laughs) And then I'll bring it back and I'll hang it up so it dries. And then it looks good as new. There's like no sweat rings or anything. It's magical. I need to put it through the Angie test, though. I know. I usually have salt stains on all of my hats. So maybe it's just the color that it doesn't show up very much. I think that must be it. Yeah, it's like baby blue. Of course, there's still plenty of time to register for this race. Join the party and uh, challenge yourself with another race this fall. Just go to Marathon Training Academy forward slash half to learn more about that. So that's what's going on here. Of course, I've got a marathon in Austria pretty soon. That'll be in the beginning of October. And yeah, a lot of good stuff happening too out in the community. We'd like to say a big word of congrats to one of our coaching clients, Mandar from India, who successfully finished the Ladakh Marathon, which I had never heard of, but it's the world's highest marathon because you run at an altitude of 11,000 feet. Can you imagine that? It looks epic. I want to go run it now. At over 11,000 feet, I think it'll be more like hiking. (laughs) Yeah. Yeah. You know, my marathon that I have coming up in Austria is kind of intimidating me because there's a strict cutoff. Plus, I'm going to have to run up to like 7,000 feet. But this marathon here that Mandar did, I think that puts things in better perspective. And I'll be thinking about the Ladakh Marathon and what those people are running at. Yeah, there you go. 
This note came in from Whitney. She says, I did the Great Smoky Mountain Half Marathon. I followed your two-hour and 10-minute training plan religiously, and it was an amazing race. My previous PR was two hours and 13 minutes, and I trusted my training and hit 207.35 today. All right. Love to hear that. Congrats on the PR. And this comes from Cecilia. She's a coaching client of Coach Joel. She says, hey, MTA friends, I did it. I finally broke the two-hour half, although it was quite tight at one hour, 59 minutes, and 52 seconds. My previous PR was actually from this very race, the Helsingborg Half Marathon in Sweden, exactly one year ago. That was my first race after signing up for MTA coaching and starting to work with Coach Joel. And now two marathons, a difficult ankle injury, and a couple of not-so-successful races later, it's all coming together. Yes, today was hard. The weather was definitely on the warmer side and I had forgotten about the hills, but it continues to amaze me how well the training prepares me for the issues that come up on race day. That is wonderful to hear. Keep up the great work, Cecilia. Congrats on going sub two in the half marathon. Love it. That's right. And this note comes from Luke in the Academy. He says, Dear Angie, I wanted to take a minute and email you a huge thank you for the plan you made me this summer for my marathon training. The race is next week on Sunday, and I believe I'm in prime position to go sub three hour and get a BQ. I've done things this summer that I've been trying to do on my own and was coming up short every time. The reason I joined the Academy was to get help, and the plan you made me has really been fantastic. Your plan challenged me with speed work, which I always dreaded, but I went out and I completed it every time and was overjoyed because I knew I was getting better and pushing myself to the next level. He says, thanks for everything, Luke. And we just got an update he posted in the Academy last night. He says, I am a Boston Marathon qualifier with a time of 2 hours, 56 minutes, and 37 seconds at the Erie Marathon. I absolutely had what it takes to go sub three and live my dreams. Thank you so much to everyone for your support. Wow, that is blazing fast. 2.56.37 and qualifying for Boston. Congrats, Luke. Just goes to show, you know, what's possible when people actually do what I don't do, and that is hit all their prescribed speed workout sessions, you know? <laughs> if you're right, it's easy to dread and to skip all that stuff, but man, you put in the work and it paid off big. So congrats to you, Luke. Keep up the great work. Well on my way, well on my way. In this episode, we wanted to just do kind of a nuts and bolts look at how to fuel for a marathon. This is something that's pretty tricky and it can differ from person to person. So it's really a complex subject and we haven't delved into it for a whole episode in quite a while. Yeah, that's right. It can be really challenging to figure out what your fueling strategy is going to be, especially for your first half marathon or marathon. And what's interesting, too, is that your fueling tolerance can also change over time. So sometimes you need to go back to the drawing board and reevaluate things. Really figuring out a fueling strategy is quite challenging because there's really no one-size-fits-all formula. And we do get a lot of questions about this topic. So we thought we'd kind of uh, lay down some of the basics, you know, and also get into some special situations as well and what people can maybe try in those cases to be more successful. So from a physiological standpoint, your body is going to burn through approximately 80 to 100 calories per mile or per 1.6 kilometers while you're running. Um, the total calories will vary based on your weight, the amount of muscle mass you have, your pace or effort level, and of course, environmental conditions. 
And the body stores fuel in the form of glycogen, and it keeps around 1,200 to 1,800 calories readily available in the muscles, and it also keeps a small amount of glycogen in the liver. Now, the amount of muscle glycogen is also going to vary based on your size, your muscle mass, and how carefully you've trained your body to absorb carbs, like during the refueling period post-workout. So that's why there's kind of that range about how many calories that most people have on board of glycogen. So while you're running, your body is going to burn a combination of carbohydrates and fat. If you're running hard, you're going to burn mostly carbs, while easier effort runs will tap into your fat reserves. And the body can also break down muscle to convert to energy, especially on longer runs if you're not replacing some protein. And so that's something we definitely don't want to be sacrificing. We want to keep as much muscle on board as we can. Um, That muscle breakdown is referred to as muscle catabolism. I always thought it was cannibalism because your body's eating itself. Yeah, I mean, it can. you can refer to it as cannibalism as well. That sounds cooler, I think. <laughs> sounds more ominous. <laughs> <laughs> sounds like I want to avoid that for sure. That's right. So if you'll be running for 90 minutes or more, or you're doing a very hard effort of shorter duration, you'll probably want to start experimenting with fueling methods. The other alternative is going through the process of becoming fat-adapted, which can take from several weeks to several months. And when you become fat-adapted, that delays the amount of fueling that you need to take on board because your body more readily can tap into your fat reserves. But whichever method you choose, it's still going to take some time to learn what to eat before, during, and after running for the best results. And in this episode, we're going to focus primarily on non-fat-adapted runners when we're talking about a fueling strategy. Um, So if you're fat adapted, it's still wise to figure out a fueling strategy if you're going to be going the marathon distance and beyond. Yeah, we're going to break it down in a couple parts, the pre-run strategy, and then also what to eat during your run, and then finally what to eat after your run. All right, so let's go ahead and get into the pre-run strategy. Now, people vary a lot in what they're going to eat pre-run. If you'll be running for less than 90 minutes, you don't technically need any pre-run fuel. Especially if the run is at an easy pace, you may not need anything at all, um, and the body may tap a little bit into those fat reserves, but everyone is a bit different. If you find that your energy levels are dipping during a run of 90 minutes or less, or you're going to be doing a hard effort during those 90 minutes, a pre-run snack can be beneficial to help you perform your best. You just want to make sure you have plenty of time for your body to digest the food so that you don't have stomach issues or GI distress otherwise known as gastrointestinal distress, which is not fun. (laughs) Running makes digestion very challenging for the body because of the constant motion. It's, you know, it's basically like shaking the contents of the stomach and the intestines. And to add to that, blood is shunted away from your gastrointestinal system because it's being used mostly by your skeletal muscles for the action of running. So this can make adequate digestion and avoiding nausea and diarrhea a bit of a trick. Some runners are very susceptible to what's called dumping syndrome. Basically, your body decides that the food in your stomach can't be adequately digested, and it sends it on the express route through the intestines and into a porta pot if you're lucky to find one in time. <laughs> the express route. Express route, yes. <laughs> Otherwise known as diarrhea. Sometimes called code brown by runners. Exactly. Yeah, so if you've been running for long enough, you're probably going to have this happen to you. Yeah, I knew this guy one time. He went out for a run too soon after he ate. And thankfully, he was running, you know, out in the wilderness because um, he came back without a shirt. (laughs) Yes, I remember meeting him. (laughs) (laughs) 
Yeah, I've been out on on long runs before and had to duck into a cornfield. And it's definitely unpleasant when it happens. It happens, though. But yeah, so, you know, if if you're prone to intestinal distress, it's always wise to run with toilet paper, maybe in a little, like, resealable baggie, just because it's better safe than sorry. So if you're going to be running more than 90 minutes and you have a sensitive digestive system, make sure that any pre-long run or race meal that you eat is finished at least three hours before you start. This is really the amount of time it takes for the blood sugar and insulin levels to return to their normal state. If you eat closer to a long run or race, your body will simply burn through your glycogen stores more quickly, and that may cause a drop in energy levels while you run, and you you may have some stomach issues as well. Many morning runners do their shorter runs in a fasted state. That means they don't eat maybe other than coffee before heading out the door. And it's actually okay to start a long run or race with an empty stomach too. I know this seems a little counterintuitive and maybe a little scary at first, It was kind of a hard concept for me to accept at first, too. I was used to eating around maybe an hour and a half or two hours before my long runs and marathons, and it just wasn't working well for me. I would have like a constant churning in my stomach during the first few miles. I would often experience a blood sugar crash at about mile six to seven, and it was a huge moment for me when I realized that it was my pre-race meal that was causing all the issues. Yeah. Well, now I think you and I both have been pretty much running on an empty stomach if we're not doing that far of a distance. If we're just doing a you know regular easy training run, I'll just get up, drink my coffee, and then go. Yeah. I think a lot of runners have found that's a good strategy for them. Um, actually, during your night of sleep, the body is in fasting mode, but it does hang on to its store of glycogen in the muscles. So the muscle glycogen is sitting there ready to go no matter if your stomach is empty or not. The only thing that really gets empty during the night is the glycogen store in your liver. So the goal of the pre-race meal is simply to top off your glycogen stores. And this can actually be accomplished right before your race or long run without negatively affecting your body and the way it burns through your muscle glycogen. So for several years, we've used the approach of not eating before a race or long run because who wants to get up three hours earlier than the starting time to eat anyway? Exactly. Um, like I mentioned, it was a little scary at first heading out with an empty stomach. However, it's worked really well. Um, we simply start our fueling strategy right before starting the run or the race, and then just keep up with your steady fueling plan for the duration. And at least for us, no more churning stomach, no more energy crash. So it's definitely something to experiment with if your current strategy isn't working well. So yeah, since we've been talking about that fueling recommendation several years ago, we've heard from a lot of people. um, Many people said they were very skeptical and hesitant to not eat before a long run or a race. However, once they tried it, the response has been overwhelmingly positive. I think people are reporting fewer stomach problems and steadier energy. Yeah, and I'm getting to where I I will usually eat before a long run now uh, because I usually don't do my, my runs until later in the day. (laughs) <laughs> most people don't leave for their long runs at noon though <laughs> yeah so i will eat or if i'm doing a race and the race is not till nine o'clock or something i'll have breakfast beforehand nothing too heavy but yeah we have done lots of long runs and races with not eating any breakfast just going straight to the starting line and then starting to take uh you know the fueling products that uh, we're going to talk about later 
Yeah, that's right. Now, I will interject here. For some women, running in a fasted state can, over time, do a number on their hormones because in the morning is when our cortisol or that stress hormone is at its highest state. And so if you go out and you do especially a hard run in the morning in a fasted state, your body is like, wait, this is stress happening. So it makes more cortisol. And in order to make more cortisol, it's going to draw from your sex hormones. So your testosterone, your progesterone, your estrogen, and it can send those levels out of whack. So mm. Um, you know, you have to kind of be careful and, you know, figure out what works best for your body because, you know, people who think, oh, I'm going to do this run and my body's going to tap into its fat stores and burn more fat can sometimes be doing themselves a disservice, like I said, especially with women, because when your body is producing more cortisol, it's going to store more fat. Um, so it's kind of like can be the opposite effect. It's one of those things where you really have to listen to your body and try different things to see what works best for you because really there's no one-size-fits-all formula. And for people who have chronic stomach issues on long runs or during races, you may want to try changing to a different sports drink or fueling product because there are some sweeteners that can cause trouble for people. Sweeteners like fructose, maltodextrin, agave, and stevia can cause problems for some people who have more sensitive stomachs. Um, another strategy if you're having stomach issues is to make sure that, like we talked about before, that you have a pre-run meal, but it's finished at least three hours before exercise. Um, you may also want to try avoiding dairy products because a lot of people are lactose intolerant and they don't know it. Um, and it's just exacerbated when you run. And a final cause of GI distress for some people is their caffeine intake. It can just like cause <laughs> things to speed up in your stomach and cause diarrhea and stuff like that. So if you're having stomach issues, just start playing around a little bit. Maybe try making sure that you're more careful about the sweeteners and your fueling products. Make sure you're not having dairy in the morning maybe moderate your caffeine intake a little bit and see if that helps. Now, if you do choose to eat before your race or long run, you'll want to eat something that's high in carbohydrate with some protein, but fairly low in fiber and fat. The longer period of time that you can have between when you eat and you head out the door, the better, especially if you struggle with GI distress. Um, some people have iron guts and they can eat almost anything before and during running, while others have really touchy systems and it can be challenging to figure out a good fueling regimen. One thing that's important to remember with fueling is that the goal is not to replace all the calories you burn. Your body simply can't digest that many calories while you run. So you will be in a calorie deficit, especially during your long runs. But your body is equipped to deal with a calorie deficit. So when you figure out your fueling strategy for a long run, you don't want to plan on consuming, let's say, 1,000 calories if you're planning on running 10 miles. You know, people say, okay, I'm going to burn through approximately 100 calories per mile. I'm running a 10-miler. I need, you know, 1,000 calories. Mm. That calorie in, calorie out approach while running is not what you want to do. Your body just cannot absorb that much. It's going to sit in your stomach and, you know, possibly your body is going to reject it. Men can usually take in a higher range of calories per hour while women should plan on using their body weight as a starting point. So for example, if you're 150 pounds, then try consuming 150 calories per hour while running, especially if you're a woman. Uh, men can often maybe go up to the 200, 240 calorie uh, per hour mark. Uh, it's just something to play with. And maybe start with less is more. And then if you find that you need a little bit more energy, just add a little bit more at a time. Yeah, 
Before we move on to talking about what to eat during your run, Angie, you mentioned eating something for breakfast, if you are going to eat before your run, something that has some protein, but it's lower in fiber and fat. So what would be some examples a lot of people go with the traditional like toast or bagel or an English muffin with maybe like a nut butter spread on it or like even a peanut butter and jelly sandwich. If you deal with stomach issues, um, some people find that doing a gluten-free source of carbs um, just digests more easily and can cause less issues. So even like a gluten-free slice of toast with almond butter or peanut butter or something like that can settle well. Um, I typically, if I'm going to eat, I'll eat oatmeal and usually has some berries in it and some nuts. And that seems to work pretty well for me. And we haven't even mentioned one of your most favorite rules that you always say to experiment and try nothing new on race day, right? (laughs) Exactly. Yeah. You don't want to be, uh, you know, especially if you've traveled and you're in a new, a new city and there's all sorts of cool food options to try at. You don't want to be trying those out the night before your race or the morning of your race for sure. (laughs) Like, Hmm, I'm in, uh, the UK. I think I'll try some beans for breakfast. I'll have a full English breakfast before my race. You know, you know, if you've never tried that before, Oh, yeah, I love a full English breakfast. But that's a good point. I haven't tried to eat a full English breakfast and then go run. So if you're not used to eating something like uh, black pudding, don't let race morning be the first time you try it, right? (laughs) Sounds like wise advice to me. (laughs) All right, so let's talk about what to eat then during your run uh, or your race. And uh, yeah, we're going to just really dive into this because there is a lot to think about. So like we've talked about, your long runs are going to be the time when you want to try out various fuels to figure out your strategy for race day. And there are lots of different options available. It seems like every year there's dozens of new products that are released. So it can be a little bit confusing, but definitely during your long runs, during your training, it's a time to practice what your fueling strategy is going to be for your race. Um, Don't just show up to the race and expect to use whatever they're serving at the aid stations, especially if you have a sensitive system that can really go wrong. And sometimes you don't, you're not guaranteed they're actually going to have stuff at aid stations. You know, they may advertise they have gels at certain points, but if they run out or you miss them, it's always wise to be prepared and, you know, to kind of have a sense of agency for your own fueling during your race. A very popular option, um, of course, is gels. And energy gel, for those who aren't familiar, comes in a packet. It usually has like a syrupy gel-like consistency, and it provides carbohydrates to the body very quickly. And pretty much in the same category as gels, you also have most of your chews, your goos, your blocks, chomps, sports beans, that kind of thing. Most contain around 100 calories per serving. Uh, Gels are frequently provided at a couple of aid stations during most marathons. It's something to research for sure. Some people find that the concentrated sugar in gels makes them stick to their stomach. This is because most gels have approximately a 73% concentration of sugars, and the stomach isn't equipped to deal with that effectively. It's just like too concentrated for your system to effectively assimilate. So you'll notice that most gels recommend you take it with two to four ounces of water to reduce the concentration. That's going to allow your body to be able to start breaking it down more effectively. The recommended use of energy gels and other products is typically 
If you're going into the race fasted, use one five to 10 minutes before starting. Otherwise, use one every 25 to 40 minutes thereafter during your long run or race. So right now you can imagine if you're doing a marathon, you have to carry a lot of gels. (laughs) It just depends on your body's needs. Um, You know, some people who have a higher metabolism and need a higher amount of calories are going to need more, you know, especially if they have a slower pace, they may may be out there for several hours. I remember when we were using um, hammer gels back in the day, and I was taking like six or so at a marathon. I didn't have enough pockets, so then I had to buy shorts with more pockets, and I found some really slick shorts called race ready shorts that have like a whole band of pockets and it also reminds me too, I mean, you talk, you talk about consuming a lot of gel. One time we had um, Stephanie Howe on the podcast. She's now Stephanie Violet. She won the Western States 100 mile ultra marathon, I think back in like 2014. And we asked her, well, how did you fuel for this? And she's one of those high sugar runners, like does really well and can tolerate it. She said, well, I, I basically used 90 gels and drank Mountain Dew or something at the aid stations <laughs> and Jolly Ranchers. <laughs> Oh, that just makes my stomach yeah. curdle at the thought. <laughs> yeah, I, I can't handle too much of the sweetness. I mean, after like three or four gels, I was like, oh, I cannot eat any more of these. It was just too much sweetness. Yeah, so the amount of gels or related products that you will consume will depend on your metabolism, your body weight, how much your system can absorb, and your fitness level. And the brand of gel or goo or chomp or block or be- sports beans that you use will depend on your personal preference and taste. If you have a sensitive stomach, do some label reading to see what kind of sugars are contained in the product. Those ones that I talked about earlier can sometimes trigger issues for some people. And if taking a whole gel at once doesn't work for you, it might be wise to take half at a time, wash down with water from an aid station. Um, Back in the day when I used gels, I could only take about half at a time. It was just you know, boom, 100 calories in my stomach at once was not a good, mm. a good system. So for me, I would maybe take a half a gel every 20 minutes and kind of time it so I could wash the gel down with water from an aid station to help, it, you know, the body be able to digest it and absorb it better. Of course, like we talked about earlier, if you're planning on using fueling products from an aid station during a race, it's wise to practice with that fuel during your long runs to make sure it actually agrees with your system and how much you're going to need. And then also figure out a way to carry whatever you need to carry. Um, and sometimes those gels are really hard to open. Like your, if your fingers are cold during a race or you're, they're slippery with sweat. Yeah, you have to fumble with it as you're going through a water stop and there's like tons of people behind you and you got to keep moving. Now someone hands you a cup of water. So you got one hand occupied holding that and another hand fumbling with your gel. Right. Pretty soon the water is spilled on yourself. <laughs> yeah. So it's good to plan ahead. If you can kind of know where the aid stations are. You're like, okay, there's an aid station coming up in a half mile. It's time to get my gel out and take however much of it that I want so that by the time you get to the aid station, the gel situation is done. You can throw away the packet. You can grab your water. You can wash it down. You can kind of keep moving. So kind of thinking through that strategy ahead of time can save you a lot of headache on race day. Okay, so we talked about gels. Now let's talk about sports drinks. That's right. So sports drinks are probably the most well-known fueling source in the endurance field, the industry. I mean, even 
people who don't exercise or do sports actually consume sports drinks, you know, the popular Gatorade, Powerade type things. That's right. <laughs> so you can definitely buy the ready-made sports drinks, or then you can also get the powders that you mix up on your own. And depending on how much water you mix the powder with will determine the amount of calories per serving. It's wise to follow the package directions because something called the osmolality of the carbohydrate solution is important in how it's assimilated into your body. If you choose to mix the powder thicker than recommended, make sure that you take it with that additional water so that it can absorb into your system. Osmolality is basically the concentration of dissolved particles in your blood plasma. So the higher the concentration of the carbohydrate source, the higher the osmolality. This means it takes longer to leave your stomach and intestines, during which time it's not being made available to your muscles. So like we talked about with gels, they have a 73% concentration of carbohydrates, which can hit your stomach sometimes like a load of bricks <laughs> and make it difficult for your stomach to absorb. The same thing can happen with sports drinks if they're not uh, mixed up properly. Now, most races provide sports drinks at nearly every aid station. If you plan on taking advantage of this for your fueling, it's wise to practice with it in advance and also know how much you need because sometimes at aid stations during races, you know, the cups can have anywhere from two ounces to maybe six ounces of fluid in there. So you kind of have to really gauge what your sports drinks needs are if you're going to use that for fueling and also hydration. Of course, if you choose to carry your own sports strength to fuel with, make sure you've practiced carrying the mount that you'll need for the race. You know, we've talked about before, there's hydration packs, there's waist belts, there's various bottles that you can carry. Um, but do note that many larger marathons don't allow hydration packs. So take that into account as well when you're planning your need for sports drinks uh, during a race. So do you know many runners who have fueled just with sports drinks? Well, for my first marathon, I had no idea what I was doing. I mean, <laughs> my fueling, when I look back on it during training and during the race, was an absolute mess. It's <laughs> amazing that I didn't have more problems than I did. I used a sports drink from the aid stations, but there was no, like, strategy. <laughs> yeah, fortunately, it worked out okay. I mean, I didn't have any GI distress. You didn't bonk really hard? I remember, you know, struggling the last few miles, of course, um, but... You know, sometimes that can happen no matter how you fuel. But yeah, I did not have a fuel plan. Uh, I just kind of randomly drank. I mean, I finished, but it could have been a lot better scenario, I'm sure. <laughs> and sometimes we tell people, if you're in your marathon, just stick to your fueling strategy that you've worked out and don't take the stuff that's out on the course because you haven't practiced with it. So they might be offering Gatorade or Powerade or, you know, in, in Switzerland, they have something called Sponsor. So there could be all kinds of stuff out there. But if you haven't tested it, especially if you're really gunning for a time, a specific time goal, you probably should just pass it on by. <laughs> right. Now, if you're having a serious energy crash and you think it's because you didn't prepare with enough fueling, then obviously having the stuff at the race is better than nothing at all. All right. Then we have combination products. Right. There are some products out there that contain a combination of carbohydrates and protein. Many people find that including some protein in their fuel helps the body avoid breaking down as much muscle during long distance efforts. So a few combination products that come to mind include the You Can Performance Energy with Protein. And many of the energy bars will have like a combination of carbohydrates and protein. Energy bars typically have a higher percentage of carbs, some protein, and minimal fat. And they usually contain around 200 calories, 
per serving and have a more substantial consistency. Many people find that eating bars can disrupt their rhythm. They can sometimes require more space to carry and sometimes may present digestion problems. And obviously, if you're eating something more substantial like a bar, you want to follow it with some type of fluid to help wash it down. That's going to help your system absorb it and digest it better as well. And then, of course, there is real food. That's an option as well. Yeah, that's right. Many runners like to steer clear of more highly processed fuels and rely on real food options. So some of these could include things like baked sweet potato, baked salted potatoes, rice balls, baby food pouches. Um, there's you know applesauce or fruit sauces, nut butter pouches, honey, maple syrup. Uh, some people consume like flat soda or you know soda pop. So they're drinking it flat so they're not burping all the time? Exactly. The carbonation can kind of cause your stomach to expand a bit. <laughs> Trail mix, cheese, bacon, bananas, dried fruit, candy, pretzels. So there's a lot of different varieties of things that people fuel with. Of course, a possible disadvantage of real food during running is that it often has a higher amount of fiber and fat, and this may cause stomach upset. So if you choose to use real food, be sure to practice, practice, practice with it. During races, there are often unofficial aid stations set up with everything from beer to pretzels to pickles and candy. And unless you have an iron stomach or have practiced with these foods, or of course, if you're running at a very easy pace and you don't really care about your finishing time, be very careful about trying anything new on race day. So it sounds like whatever fueling source people are going to use, whether it's gels or drink mixes or even real food, going back to what we said, they should figure out how many calories per hour they need, right? Exactly. So and start with a conservative range. So for most people, they're going to need between 120 and maybe 240 calories per hour. Men, larger individuals, people with higher metabolisms will need on the higher side, and most women will need more on the lower side. Um, and then, yeah, kind of figure out how much you're going to need per hour and then start breaking that down into anywhere from 20 to 30 minute segments because you don't typically want to take especially over 100 calories at once. It's just a lot for your stomach to deal with. So if you can break up that 100 calories maybe into a 20 to 30 minute window, maybe take like 75 calories at the 30 minute mark and another 75 at the hour mark or even break it down into smaller increments that can be helpful for your body to absorb it. And of course, the time to figure this out is during your long runs. So if you kind of feel like maybe you kind of hit a wall in the later miles, you might want to just up that calorie amount per hour just a tiny bit and see if that helps. If you start getting stomach issues, you know, maybe look at the type of fuel that you're using, read the label, see if there could be any of those ingredients that can cause problems. Look at your pre-run meal to uh, kind of determine if you can figure out the culprit to the GI distress. And it could be a matter of just backing down the amount of fuel that you take at a time to give your system time to absorb it or, you know, even taking more fluid with it. So kind of start calibrating it, experimenting with it. And then, you know, hopefully the, the goal is that by race day, you have a tried and true strategy down so that you feel confident and comfortable with the amount of fuel that you're going to use. And one company that we like, we've been using for years, and the product is famous for being gentle on the stomach, and that is Generation You Can. They actually have a drink mix, which you can mix with water, carry a small handheld water bottle and sip it as you go. Or they have snack bars, which is kind of like the same thing, just formulated into a tasty bar. I like the chocolate peanut butter. That's right. And they also have their electrolyte source, which is the You Can Hydrate. 
Yeah, and it gives you a nice slow release of energy, not like a, a spike and a crash, like a real sugary product. Just good, consistent, stable energy. And Angie, you've probably used it for how many marathons now? Oh, I don't know. I've been using it since 2013, I think. So <laughs> a few dozen. <laughs> That's awesome. So yeah, the great thing about Generation You Can is you can actually carry a lot less of it than you would if you're taking along gels and chews and all the traditional stuff. I can actually do a whole marathon on two to three bars or two to three packets of the drink mix. I'll take like a packet before the race and then mix up two in a 12-ounce water bottle and carry that along uh, and just kind of sip it over the course of the whole race. It works really well. And you can use the code MTA Fuel since this is the fueling episode, to save 15% on your order. And for those of you who are trying it for the first time, they actually have a special first-time customer code for you. Use the code MTA25 for 25% off. Once again, it's MTA25 for 25% off your order if you're a new customer. Appreciate the folks that you can offering that. And uh, yeah, definitely give it a try. We love it. All right, Angie, so let's talk about proper fueling post-run or post-race. Yeah, proper fueling doesn't stop when you're done running. What you do in the post-run period is also very important. And a lot of people have heard that there's kind of a window of time that the body absorbs nutrients and can help recovery. And that is within 30 minutes after your run. So you want to begin your refueling process with some protein within 30 minutes after your run. This is the optimum window of time where your body refills your muscle glycogen stores and starts repairing the muscle. So in other words, the time to carb load is in that optimum window of time after you exercise. You can actually train your muscles to store extra glycogen by faithfully refueling during this time period. And many experts recommend using a three-to-one carbohydrate-to-protein ratio for your refueling. So you'll see a lot of recovery products that will have three grams of carbohydrate for every one gram of protein. Or you can simply do that by, you know, using real food options as well. Uh, but really, you know, as soon as you come in the door, you should be hydrating. You should be getting that post-run meal in right away before you go shower. <laughs> so just stay sweaty, stay stinky as you're standing there eating. And for women especially, progesterone, one of our hormones, can increase muscle breakdown. So it's really vital that we should be getting in at least 25 to 30 grams of protein with our carbohydrates within that 30-minute after your long run, or even strength workouts. This is the same concept if you're doing a tough strength training session. And there are just a lot of different recovery products out there um, that you can try. And of course, you can reach for real food options too. So the key is whether you use a specific recovery product or real food is to have that go-to thing that when you come in the door, you immediately reach for. What do you usually do, Angie? <laughs> I usually come in the door and... For weekdays, I kind of combine my like breakfast and mid-morning snack into like a, a gigantic bowl of oatmeal with nuts and fruit. Mm -hmm. And so I usually save half of that for after my workout of the day. So I typically will have some protein, some hammer whey protein, and then the rest of my oatmeal. And that's my post-workout meal. And then, you know, go get my shower and everything. And about an hour, hour and a half later, I'm ready for another meal. <laughs> kind of like... Uh, Angelo talked about on the last episode, um, loading your food, your calories around your workouts. So front loading more of your calories yeah. around the time that you're going to work out so that you have them available um, to help the body perform well and then also to recover. 
Now, some people feel nauseated um, during or after running. Sometimes this comes from consuming too many simple sugars, which can cause dumping syndrome. Sometimes it happens just because they didn't fuel enough, maybe, and the body is just feeling weak and the blood sugar is low. So if you experience GI upset after running, still try eating something, even bland carbs like mashed potatoes or cream of wheat or maybe a little bit of maple syrup or have like a herbal tea sweetened with honey or maple syrup or something like that, just something to get into your body. Because sometimes I found the times that I felt really gross post-run or nauseated, I didn't feel enough. And, you know, some people react that way <laughs> when they don't have enough on board, their their blood sugar drops. So, you know, kind of run a diagnostics on yourself and still try to get something down during that 30-minute period. And also focus on maintaining your hydration in the hours after running. Of course, we're not really talking about hydration in this episode specifically. Uh, you don't need to guzzle water the rest of the day, but make sure that you continue to drink and another reason sometimes people feel nauseated after a long run or even have a slight headache is because their electrolyte balance is off. So if, that, if you're dealing with that, try adding some electrolytes to your water and drinking on that for the rest of the day. Or if you do the electrolyte capsules, try taking a couple of those and see if it um, you know, evens your system out a bit. Yeah, there's been quite a few days where I've come in from a run and maybe it's been kind of warm outside and I just did not drink enough water, even though it felt like I had. And then as a nurse, Angie, you were telling me the, the telltale sign when someone doesn't drink enough water. Yeah, you can definitely tell how your hydration status is by looking at your urine. Uh, you know, one sign that you're not well hydrated is if you go a long time without having to urinate after your long run. So that's a sign things are not well. Then when you go, if it's dark, if it's concentrated, if it's smelly, that's a sign that you're dehydrated. So your urine should kind of be light yellow, uh, straw colored, um, so that, you know, you can definitely tell that you've taken enough fluids in. And as a nurse, Angie is an expert in bodily fluids. I've definitely seen a lot of them through <laughs> my life. <laughs> And the final thing we want to do in this episode is just answer a few questions that came in from uh, email subscribers, in fact. It just really showed us how popular this topic is. Before we do that, I'd like to give a quick word of thanks to this episode's sponsor, Tiger Balm Active. No matter what kind of runner you are, whether you're a beginner, an experienced runner, or even an ultra runner, soreness and stiffness is a universal experience that we all have. That's right. But training for your goal race or setting a new personal record shouldn't mean that you feel wrecked the next day. And Tiger Balm Active Muscle Gel can prevent that from happening. This muscle gel helps your muscles cool down after you've pushed yourself hard. And even if you don't feel sore yet, it can help combat muscle fatigue if you use it right after a workout. The Tiger Balm Active Gel aids in recovery with a cooling and warming feel that will work out whatever tension a foam roller can't do alone. And one of the best parts is that it's not one of those sticky things that you can't put clothes on right away because you're trying to get it to dry. So help your muscles recover after your workouts. Go to your local CVS or Rite Aid store and pick it up. It's called Tiger Balm Active Muscle Gel. And while you're there, you can grab their muscle rub and muscle spray. That's Tiger Balm Active, available at your local CVS or Rite Aid store. So here's a question from Orla. She says, hi, Angie. So I know you should practice your race nutrition during training. I do this with gels and I'm now four weeks out from my marathon and I find it hard to take them on board. I just don't like them anymore. I'll stick with them as I'm not going to switch my strategy at this stage. So my question is, how long does it take to work a different nutrition plan into your marathon training? Many thanks. And that's from Orla. 
Yeah, that's a great question. I think a lot of people find themselves in that situation where they've been doing something for their fueling, their race is coming up. Maybe they're not super thrilled with how it's working for them, but they're scared or (laughs) rightly nervous about trying something up and switching it up too close to the race. And the amount of time that it takes to change to a different fueling strategy will vary depending on how sensitive your gastrointestinal system is. I was similar to Orla in that I primarily used gels for the first three to four years of running marathons. And then my body just started rebelling and I could not take any more gels after mile 16 without feeling like I was going to vomit. And I suffered through a couple marathons like that until I had enough. And it was kind of at that point in time, we heard about a new fuel called Generation You Can. And really, I was desperate. I was like, I am trying this. I don't care if you're not supposed to do something new on race day. (laughs) So it was actually at the Tupelo Marathon in Mississippi that I decided I was going to shake up my strategy. Now, it wasn't the ideal time to be using a new fuel, but I figured the alternative was feeling like I was going to throw up for the last 10 miles, which wasn't fun to think about either. And so I used UCAN during that marathon, and I haven't looked back. Now, I'm not necessarily recommending that strategy, but since I was an experienced marathoner, you know, I had, I don't even remember how many marathons I had under my belt at that time, at least 10 or 12. I didn't feel like I had much to lose. Um, you knew and, you were going to make it. Yeah, and it worked for me. So typically I recommend that when people are trying a new fueling strategy, they do it for at least two long runs, probably of like 16 miles or more before using it for a marathon. That way you know how palatable it is, how often you should take it if it's going to cause any issues in your system. One thing she may want to try, if she's trying to choke down a whole gel at a time, try splitting it up into maybe two to three doses instead of the whole dose at once. So maybe try taking half the gel um, at one point and then a couple, three miles later, take the other half of the gel and make sure that you wash it down with water. And that may help her system be able to digest it a little bit better. So that's something that she could try. But yeah, typically um, you want to give your new fueling strategy at least a couple long runs to work out the bugs. But, you know, if you're desperate and you don't care about your finishing time, (laughs) um, you know, I know people who do just try something new during the marathon. It's not ideal, but sometimes desperate times call for desperate measures. And of course, there's lots of flavors of gel. And I'm sure she's already thought about this. But when I was using gels, they're just some flavors I couldn't choke down. And I'm thinking back to one that was like a tropical fruit flavor. Yeah, that was like, absolutely a no. <laughs> and it's like, okay, save your very, very favorite flavors for later in the race, because your taste buds are going to get a lot pickier as the miles go on. <laughs> so if there's ones that you're kind of like, oh, this is not my favorite, you know, take them earlier on and then save the ones that are pretty tried and true that you can always get down for later in the race. Or if you're doing a combo and you've experimented maybe some with real food, quote unquote, real food, like a granola bar or some kind of energy bar, take that along and eat that after mile 20. That'll kind of be a little treat for yourself. We don't eat it all at once. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Just kind of bite every mile or something. Right, because I think with gels, for a lot of people, it's the consistency of them. It's just kind of that sticky, syrupy, super sweet, concentrated. It just kind of almost is a little bit gagging. Um, and so maybe if you know, you've been using gels, uh, try like a similar product, like a chew or a chomp or you know something that's similar but gives you something to chew on and a different texture. So that might be something that, you know, you're not totally throwing the baby out with the bathwater, but you're kind of like switching it up a little bit. You know what I've always really liked just as a snack? I haven't ever used them in a marathon, but honey stinger waffles. You see them at a lot of running stores and they're based on 
um, Stroop waffles, which I think come from the Netherlands. Angie and I were at this grocery store uh, in Iceland and I bought this huge package of uh, Stroop waffles because I was going to bring them back and give the kids some, but I think I ate them all before we... <laughs> I know you ate them all. <laughs> Oh, they're so good. Yeah, honey stinger waffles is a popular fueling source for people. And then the same thing. It's like a different texture for your body, something to chew on, and like a little less concentrated yeah. sweetness. That's why I like the UCAM bars, just because I like having something solid to eat. Yeah, and, and as you're experimenting during long runs, like make notes on your training log. Of course... Let me get in my soapbox for a second. I recommend everyone keep a training log, whether it's paper, whether it's online somewhere, and make notes about what you did for your fueling. Like, what did you do? What worked? What didn't work? You know, how many calories per hour? You know, when did you take them in? All that kind of stuff can be great information for you down the road. So here's a question from Allie. She says, I'm working through my marathon fueling, and I'm struggling with the blanket recommendations of carbohydrate intake. Shouldn't they be different for men and women? And for people of different weights, I've tried to find the origin of these recommendations, but I have a hard time finding them since no one feels they need to cite their sources. And my assumption is that they're from small studies with male participants. My ideal intake seems to be below the recommended carb intake, and I've had a number of runs that went poorly because I've tried to increase and hit the minimum recommended amount. My question is, is there a better way to think about fueling for those of us women who are in less studies and may exist outside of the recommendations. Yeah, when I read Ellie's question, I knew I had to answer this one because I also feel like I fall outside of the recommendations. Like I take in fewer calories per hour during running, and if I try to increase my intake too much, then I start feeling sick. And I really think it's an important point that she makes is that there isn't as much research done on female endurance athletes. Much of the studies that we see regarding fueling and carbohydrate intake have been done on men. In fact, a lot of the studies that are done on endurance athletes are actually done on cyclists. So it's, you know, it's even different between the sports of cycling and running. Runners tend to be able to take in fewer calories per hour than cyclists just because on, on a bike, there's less jostling. So I think it's an important point to realize that, yeah, the studies that you see may not work um, 100% if you're a female. And as Dr. Stacy Sims says, quote, women are not small men. Stop eating and training like one, end of quote. So there are a few variables that influence how women's bodies process fuel and that doesn't include our hormonal cycle. So for example, during the luteal phase where your hormones are high, it's typically from days 15 to 28 of the menstrual cycle, your blood sugar is going to fluctuate more, your breathing rate increases, you have less plasma volume and less sodium levels, and you may just feel weaker during that period of time. So to combat some of that during the luteal phase, you probably need more sodium, fluids, and carbs during training. Whereas during the other part of your cycle, you may find that you don't need to fuel as much and things are more on an even keel. And women who deal with GI distress find that they deal with more bloating and stomach issues during this part of the cycle. So that luteal phase when the hormones are up, it just kind of causes everything in the body to be a little bit more unstable. So it's important to remember that for both men and women, you're not looking to replace all the calories you burn while running. We kind of touched on that earlier that... You know, you're going to be in a calorie deficit, which is fine. The body can only process so many calories per hour. And of course, this is reduced while you're running because you're, some of the blood flow is shunted away from digestion to your larger muscle groups. So typically a range of about 120 to 240 calories per hour works for most runners, 
Most women will be on the smaller end of this equation. A larger persons and those with extremely higher me- metabolic rates may need a bit more. I really recommend a good book for women who are trying to figure out the puzzle of endurance training and how it relates um, is a book called Roar by Dr. Stacy Sims. She really goes into female-specific research. So you just want to really practice and don't try to force yourself to eat more calories if it's not agreeing with you. Um, of course, then if you get into the later miles of your long run or your marathon and you find that your energy is really kind of flagging and you're feeling exhausted, it could be that you didn't start your fueling strategy early enough. I find that people who wait too long to start fueling often never catch up with it. So, you know, if your strategy is going to be to take in 150 calories per hour, at the 30 minute point, you should be taking in 75 calories, you know, if you're going the distance for a marathon. And then again, at the hour point, take in another 75 calories. And then, you know, at 90 minutes, take in another 75 calories so that you're not playing catch up in the later miles. Because if you wait till you get to maybe mile 14 and you All of a sudden, it's just like someone handed you a piano and you're like, oh, no, I need more fuel. I better take some fuel on board. Well, two mistakes that people make, they they take too much at once and the body just cannot process it quickly enough. And then the other thing is that just they can't catch up and make up for that deficit. So it can kind of be a difficult thing. But yeah, Ali, I totally agree with you. A lot of people will fall below the recommendations. So just make sure that you're starting your fueling early enough in the marathon, sticking to that level that you find works well for you, and then just continuing it through the whole event. And once again, that book was called Roar, How to Match Your Food and Fitness to Your Female Physiology for Optimal Performance, Great Health, and a Strong Lean Body for Life. Yep, that is the full title <laughs> by Dr. Stacy Sims. Angie, can we, uh, can we hear you roar? No, you may not. <laughs> and the thing I like about her is she really she really is heavy on the research, and so she's going to cite her sources. You know, she's really into studying these things herself. So, um, yeah, that's a great book for really any female endurance athlete. This question is from Jonathan. He says, can you guys comment about your nutrition race strategies, specifically carb loading in the days prior to a race? Yeah, the usefulness of carb loading depends on how you define it, like we mentioned earlier a bit. It's important to be using that post-long-run meal, that 30-minute window, to replace carbs and protein. This is going to help your body learn how to store glycogen more effectively. But then, you know, as we think of carb loading in the more traditional sense, the maybe three to five days before your race, I think there is some faulty logic in the theory that by eating a bunch of extra carbs in those days before the race, your body is going to magically store extra glycogen. Um, It it maybe will take a little bit extra on board, but for the most part, if you're just eating a bunch of extra carbs, your body is going to be like, why am I getting all these (laughs) extra calories? It will cause more fluid retention. So you may find that you gain a bit of weight in the days leading up to the race. Um, And the body's either going to store any excess intake as fat or it's going to eliminate the rest of it from the body. So use that post-run 30-minute window to teach your body to store extra glycogen. And really the point that we want to get across is that you really shouldn't radically alter your diet from what worked during your training. It's fine to eat a slightly higher percentage of carbs in the days leading up to the race, but that doesn't mean you need to be eating large amounts of pasta or bread or desserts to accomplish this. It maybe will mean eating, you know, a bit more baked sweet potato or starchy vegetables. 
or maybe substituting a bit of the protein that you normally eat for a little bit more carbs. The key is on the day before your marathon, really focus on staying well hydrated, avoid eating anything new. And of course, steer clear of spicy or high fiber foods for dinner, because those can be unpleasant coming through and you may notice they're affecting you the next morning. So the night before a race, I typically have some type of meat and a starchy side, maybe baked potato, sweet potato or rice and cooked veggies. That's mostly because I try to eat a gluten-free diet for the most part. I find that that works better for me. But, you know, you want your carbohydrate source, some protein, and a little bit of fat. You really don't want anything that's too high in fiber unless you know how your system is going to deal with that. So during your training, the night before a long run, really be practicing what foods, what meals the night before work well for you. And then don't deviate from it too much um, when you're going into your marathon. All right. So this question comes from Rebecca. She says, hi, Angie. I'd love to hear about the differences in nutrition strategies for ultra distances like 50K or 50 miles versus fueling for a marathon. She's planning to sign up for a 50 miler next year and is thinking about combining UCAN with real food during her long training runs and also on race day. And she says it'll probably take her 13 plus hours to finish. So, well, that's exciting. She might do a 50 miler. That's a long way to run. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, that is very exciting. And so some of your nutrition strategy for an ultra distance will depend on your effort level during the race. If you're going to be racing the ultra, i.e. keeping your body at a higher heart rate, that's going to influence the type of fuel that your body can assimilate. Many of the elite ultra runners rely primarily on more highly processed fueling options since they're going to be going hard and they don't need their bodies doing extra work for digestion. But for most people, maybe doing their first ultra or you know, just out there to go the distance, it's all about pacing yourself conservatively. And this can lead to a broader array of food choices, i.e. your body is going to have more energy, more blood supply to be digesting food while you're out there doing your race. Now, aid stations at ultras often have an amazing variety of food along with your typical fueling options. So you can often find out what will be provided in advance from the website or from talking with people who've done their ultra before. And it can be really wise to practice with more, quote unquote, real food options during your long runs to see how your body handles these foods. That's the cool thing about some ultras is like a running buffet. (laughs) I've only done one ultra. I did that 50K uh, this summer. And there's only two stops, two aid stations. And the food was actually pretty good. They had a lot of stuff to choose from. But I brought along a Pop-Tart. I hadn't had a Pop-Tart in like 15 years. And I saved it and I ate it at mile 25. It was so glorious. So with an ultra, you also want to start your fueling and hydration regimen early in the race and not wait until you're feeling fatigued. So I personally like to make a practice of eating something every, at least every 30 to 45 minutes, whether I feel like it or not. Personally, I do, I carry this, you can snack bars with me and then I supplement with food from aid stations and that works really well. I mean, I think you can combines well with other food options And of course, it gives you that good solid baseline of energy. And of course, usually I'm running at a fairly easy pace, so I can eat just about anything. I'm not out there to win the ultra. Salty stuff tastes good. Yeah, things that often taste good during ultras for me include pickles, uh, crisps or chips, broth, soda, fruit, candy. So I would say as you're training for your ultra, maybe have kind of like your own aid station set up like a loop that you'll loop by your car and be able to access more real food options. Or if you're carrying a hydration pack, you know, you can stash it with all sorts of food and just kind of see what what sounds good to you while you're out there doing the miles, you know, experiment with more salty options, 
sweet options, you know, crunchy, the different, sometimes the different textures taste good and just see how your body reacts to those type of foods so that, you know, you have a strategy come race day. When I go to this marathon in Austria, the Kaiser Marathon in Zoll, Austria, my pre-race fueling will be going to Oktoberfest in Munich. And then race day, I'm going to take my usual stuff, but post-race replenishing, that is not a problem. (laughs) That's right. Most people look forward to that post-race celebration meal. Yeah. First thing I want to do when I finish is sit down, just get off my feet. I don't recommend sitting down right away, but... (laughs) (laughs) Stand around and eat is my is my recommendation. But sitting down is glorious. I don't know why you don't want to sit down after you finish a marathon, Angie. Well, it's just part of the cooling down process. If you sit down right away, then blood tends to pool in your lower extremities. It can cause more stiffness, soreness, and also it's not really good for your heart to go from like exerting itself to this like a dead stop. Screw my heart. It's still fun to sit down. <laughs> no, no, you're right. Actually, it's gotten better or I, I can walk more after a marathon. I remember after your first marathon, we were not that far from our hotel. And it seemed like it took us like three hours to walk like a couple blocks <laughs> back to our hotel. You kept like sitting down and I was like, come on, let's just get back to the hotel. Then you can sit down. And it was like every time I looked behind me, you were sitting down. <laughs> oh, I was beat. It was rough. All right. Well, that brings us to the end of this episode. Hope you guys learned something from it. Thank you, everyone, who sent in questions as well. And thanks again to Generation You Can for being a sponsor of the podcast and for making a great fueling product. If you want to give it a try, go to generationyoucan.com and use the code MTAFUEL for 15% off. And brand new customers, use the code MTA25 for 25% off. And if you enjoyed this kind of nuts and bolts training, you would definitely love the content inside the academy. In fact, we have a whole course on nutrition, which includes lots of information on fueling. And the course was actually created by one of our amazing coaches, who's also a registered dietitian, Coach Jennifer Giles. Just head over to MarathonTrainingAcademy.com to learn more about that. Thank you for being a listener to the MTA podcast. Keep training smart. And remember, you have what it takes to run a marathon and change your life. Well on my way, well on my way, well on my way. Hey, hey, now